Hi everyone, welcome to today's podcast episode. I'm Jonathan Medina, Head of Inclusion and Diversity at Apex, and I'm joined by Jennifer Choi, Managing Director at ILPA and the driving force behind ILPA's Diversity in Action Initiative. Jen, welcome. Thank you, Jonathan. Great to be with you. Today, we're here to talk about our LGBTQ plus community. More specifically, do a quick retrospect on Pride 2021 was this past June. Right, Jen, we saw a ton of really great support for the LGBTQ community on LinkedIn, different media, and we know for sure that PE is a performance culture, you know, a place where everyone gives their absolute best. And in order for everyone to do that and be at 100 and plus percent every single day, they need to feel seen, connected, and engaged in their work. So... I'd love to hear from you around how you think about that as it relates to the LGBTQ plus community and the efforts we all do within private equity. Just to start with, what do we know about LGBTQ plus representation in the private markets? And I think we don't know a lot. Uh, I think we're just starting to invite uh, our team members to self-identify. It's not something historically that was really being captured, certainly not consistently. And so one of the first steps is just to understand you know, what is the quality of representation that we do have and how does that link to inclusion, which is, I know, I know that's something that we'll talk about. Are we creating the sorts of workplaces, team cultures that would allow someone to feel comfortable being, you know, their full authentic selves in the workplace? And, and how does that manifest as far as some of the specific things that we're all doing uh, to create that, that safe, welcoming, inclusive space? But we're, we're starting to see more organizations try to figure out the best way to ask these questions of their teams so that everybody who wants to be fully counted, who wants to have a voice in shaping culture is given the opportunity to do so. And isn't that amazing, Jen, the idea that in a world of 10,000 private equity firms managing almost $4 trillion of assets under management, where we actually measure everything uh, around performance, we haven't taken the time to really measure our people and understand the differences that LGBTQ plus community, as well as other diversity segments bring to the table. What I'm hearing you say, essentially, is that there's a call for action. We all have to do that self-identification, right? And think about how it is that we can make our people feel comfortable to share with us that they are part of the community. And more so, once we actually understand that they're part of the community and who is part of the community, how do we show up for them and how do we support them? So if you're comfortable with it, why don't we talk a little bit about how companies can think about self-ID and what are some of the things they should be considering? So much of what we hear from Diversity in Action signatories, that's over 170 organizations at this point that have joined the network. First of all, they they want employees to self-identify so that they can create programs, policies, think about employee engagement holistically, inclusively. They want this information and they and they want it to come from employees. And so some of the specific things that we're hearing about, and you can certainly validate from, from your perspective at Apex, is you know, it has to be anonymous. People have to have assurances that this is confidential, that the that any information shared will be treated confidentially. Oftentimes, um, there's reference to using third-party resources to add that additional layer of trust in what's happening with the information. There has to be 
some sort of a trust building and educational exercise with employees. Why are you asking these questions? What are you going to do with the information? If you're asking for details for data from individuals and you don't do anything with it, that's discrediting to the larger effort. That undermines your legitimacy. So it's not only important to give people assurances that this is safe. You're doing this. You're doing it for good reason. The information will be treated with respect, but also we're going to do something with it. Those are such a great points, right? At Apex, what, what we've done is just that. We've needed optional to identify, right? We've also made it very clear, like you said, that we use the data to understand and improve our programming, to actually report out to the LPs on our progress, because we want to make sure that we're being held accountable, not only internally, but also externally for our progress in supporting the community. Now, the the other piece that was really interesting as we thought about this in terms of self-identification is that the requirements vary very, very much across the globe. So one of the things we did was actually spend the time and effort to enlist legal counsel to help us understand what's allowed and what's not allowed. And at the end of it all, what we realized is the only way to make people feel comfortable about the data and give them clarity as to how we're going to use it is actually taking a page off of the marketing playbook and saying, this is the reason why we need it. And by the way, we care about your data and we're going to protect it. Now, Jen, the other thing that comes to mind as, as we think about LGBTQ plus communities is this idea that once we understand our people and we know what their needs are, we have to begin to create an environment that's inclusive, right? One of the reasons I, I bring this up is when I started my career on the trading floor, I did a trade and I went to cross it with another trader and he actually decided that he didn't want to do the trade, even though we'd agreed on it ahead of time. And ultimately he didn't do it. And I asked him, Hey, where's the print? And he said, get out of here, you. And he used the F word, which I won't repeat here. And in that moment, right, as he was much bigger than I was and also much senior, I kind of walked up to him shaking in my boots because, by the way, my manager had told me that there were no LGBTQ plus people in a room of 600, right, at, at this point. And I said to him, I'm really glad you said that because now my client gets a better print. Thank you. And if for some reason you don't want to do that, we'll walk to HR and we'll explain why what you said is just not allowed, right? And I could do that because in the organization that I was in, I felt supported by our processes, right? And I knew that HR and my managers, et cetera, would have my back. So my question to you is, how do we create that across the board, an environment that's inclusive, where people feel supported, and more importantly, where folks don't feel like they can use words like the ones used on me you know, 12, 15 years ago? I think there are lots of different threads there. One is to start with inquiry and really seek to understand the experience of the entire team and wherever you can have that overlay of 
what is it about how they identify that might contribute to a differentiated experience? If you're only getting broad-based information back from employees about how they experience your organization and you don't understand well, what might be the lens with which they are experiencing it, that's not going to really give you insightful information. So I'd say starting with inquiry. Another common thread among organizations who seem to get this is the importance of tone at the top when it comes to values. And as you say, what is acceptable, what is not? And being clear about how far that extends. You're not, you're not trying to be the thought police. You're trying to create and cultivate a respectful work environment where everybody feels like they are valued, where they where they are being heard and seen, as you said at the top of this conversation. And so one thing that, that we've observed through the diversity in action work is the importance of intentionality and accountability among senior leaders at the firm. This is not an HR problem. It's not an HR problem to solve. It's not theirs to own. It has to be inclusive um, as, as far as a, a mechanism or a body for accountability. It has to include deal team, senior leadership, um, managing partners, folks at the very top and the ex-co. Everybody who has an important role to play in setting that tone has to be part of the conversation around setting those goals, communicating those out to the full team, making sure everybody fully understands, fully embraces those values sees with clarity the vision for the culture that you're trying to create. So we could go on and on, but just, you know, starting with inquiry, giving people the space to identify so you understand the depth of what they're telling you and having that intentionality and accountability at the top of the organization. Yeah, such wise words, right? The concept of this is not an HR issue to solve. It's an everyone issue to embrace and make a difference with is certainly spot on. We're of the same minds there. You know, I as you talk through that, one of the things that came to mind is making sure that those policies, right, and that tone, like you said, from the top are set in a way that are very clear, right? We exactly stand behind the LGBTQ plus community. And there's no wavering on that. Other than some of the things that we've been talking about, how can our LPs and GPs um, actually show that commitment externally, Jack? What are your thoughts there? I'm not sure you've got a, a clear answer on how you show that support externally. There, there may be some more obvious means of doing that when it comes to partnering with and supporting organizations that are squarely focused on the LGBTQ plus community in financial services and private markets, so out for grads, out investors, out leadership are a few that I'm familiar with and you could probably add to that list. Um, but that being one, and whether that's, you know, in service of how you think about recruiting, making sure that you're plugged in to those pools of talent that self-identify as part of those communities is certainly one thing that both LP, LPs and GPs can do. And to your point about policies, and I, I, again, I think you'll have some terrific specific ideas around this, but how do things like leave policies and healthcare policies need to look different or more expansive to make sure that you're making space for everyone, including the LGBTQ plus community. Totally. One of the things we realized very early on was that to your point around policies is that our policies around fertility and parental leave, et cetera, were 
actually inclusive for the LGBTQ community as well, but it wasn't written out inclusively, right? So our people actually had questions about, does this apply to me if I'm a gay man, right? If my partner and I are trying to conceive, does this benefit work for me? And the answer was a resounding yes. But for us, unfortunately, it was a bit of a miss because we hadn't written it out that way. So even just a sheer review of the policy to make sure that the intentionality is actually there and captured goes such a long way. Now, to your point around other other kind of ideas, I was sitting with uh, Nicholas Klemchuk, the head of, um, or one of the heads of the investor group, and we were talking about exactly this. We saw lots of rainbows, if you will, on uh, LinkedIn posts, etc. And we started questioning, are folks really behind this movement, right? Are folks creating spaces like the one where we were in where there's community to be had, right? Where we can actually see other LGBTQ plus members and realize that we're not alone, that there are others just like us, right? Are companies thinking about recruiting, like you said, specifically at some of these organizations, right? Like Ramba, reaching out, reaching out MBA or out, uh, out investors and out for biz, et cetera, right? And are we making sure that what we talk about diverse slates, that that includes the LGBTQ plus community? Because for many folks, a diverse slate means some of the diversity elements that you can visibly see. And as you know, um, LGBTQ plus isn't something you can always see or experience. Absolutely. And um, I will tell you that in conversations with folks about how they have, with a lot of intentionality and good intention, shifted their recruiting practices in some cases, it's exactly that. It's it's aimed towards a specific underrepresented group. A vis- I don't like the word minority myself, um, but you know, some uh, somebody who is visibly a member of an underrepresented group, and so women of color, which is fantastic. We need more women of color in this industry, but I do think, to your point, that less visibly underrepresented individuals, it's it's hard. It's 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 a really thorny challenge. How do you pivot? other than some of the things that we've talked about, partnering with groups specifically oriented towards those individuals, how do you pivot in a way that helps those people pop up in your recruiting practice? And, you know, the other thing I'd say is that, yeah, you want to make sure that people see themselves in your organization and that they see um, role models, right? That can be huge if you have individuals in your organization who are who are out, and that can be a really positive signal to candidates. Um, but what's interesting is in some cases where we hear about these employee resource groups or affinity groups, right? Um, the vast majority of individuals in some of these pride groups, for example, are allies, um, which is which is terrific because that also sends a really powerful signal, particularly if it's somehow visible to, to the sorts of candidates that you're trying to attract. That's so true. It, it's funny. I I laugh and smile because I was having a conversation with um, 
Alex Sinkov, who co-leads our um, Thrive Network, uh, our LGBTQ plus ERG. And he was saying, Jonathan, you're like the ERG killer. Right. And I, and I said, why, why? Right. <laughs> and, and he said, well, because you keep telling me we can't just be about food, fun and festivals. We have to be able to educate our community. We have to educate our allies, help our allies show their commitment to us in a visible, but also meaningful way. And we have to make sure that our our members that are part of the community are also feeling supported and are growing and are developing. And he kept saying to me, that's a lot to place on an ERG. And, you know, part of, part of where we landed was, yeah, absolutely. Diversity and inclusion is heavy lifting. Um, and it's lifting that we all have to do together, right? But ultimately, if we hold hands and we leverage the majority, in this case, the allies, you know, to, to help us be seen, we can really take this far. Right? And the truth of the matter is that we're just breaking the ice, if you will, on LGBTQ plus in private equity. We've done some really focused efforts with gender diversity. Now I think it's time to pivot a little bit, or maybe not pivot, include LGBTQ plus diversity. What do you think about that? Well, how do you, how do we widen the aperture? To your to your point. Um... I think so many of us in this private markets ecosystem, ILPA included, started off the work with maybe not a laser focus on gender, but that's where the bulk of the effort really was because it was kind of the most glaringly obvious and addressable thing for us to do. And we've certainly seen that conversation expand and more and more nuance added to what am I asking people to share with me as far as how they identify? How am I thinking about my recruitment practices? How I develop people, advancement and promotion, my retention, my policies, and not just about women. Thinking about it through all of the different lenses, keeping intersectionality in view, which is important as well. And you know, one, one thing I'm encouraged by, even if we haven't made nearly the progress maybe we'd both like to see, <laughs> Um, I am I am encouraged by momentum around the conversation and the fact that more organizations are starting to acknowledge that there's bias everywhere, right? There and maybe you have views on on this, but you know, they're going through these unconscious bias training programs, they're examining where bias might exist in their recruitment, they're examining where bias might exist in terms of who gets opportunities for adv- advancement, who's being cultivated as a future leader of the organization, but we're early days, right? We're still in this very much in the information gathering and understanding phase of this work. That's so true. And by the way, you said that so much more eloquently than I could ever (laughs) say. Um, and, And I'm also reminded of what you said also at the beginning, which is the concept of self-ID and self-reporting, right? Without that data set, without that baseline, you can't actually track where your bias points are. You can't see that you're giving opportunities to one group um, more frequently than another because you 
can't differentiate between the groups, right? right? And, it, and it's that data um, that we apply across the board in everything we do um, in this industry that we need to start thinking about within inclusion and diversity. And I'm happy to say at Apex, we're, we're doing exactly that. Well, and, and I go back to something you said earlier about the call to action. The call to action is really how do we crack the code on helping people feel comfortable in being fully recognized so that we can get that data, so that we can understand where the bias exists, so that we can understand where we're falling short relative to where we'd like to be. But we've got to figure out whether it's education or, you know, the marketing playbook, as you said, we've got to figure out what is the messaging here that will make people feel comfortable and how do we deliver on the promise of asking them to self-identify in the first place. Jen, the, the other thing I think about a lot is that inclusion and diversity for so many feels like something that's good to do or nice to have, right? It isn't necessarily, quote unquote, accretive to the business, right? But when we think about it being a performance culture and this idea that our people need to show up with their A game every day, and when they don't feel comfortable to be their true selves, for example, um, imposter syndrome creeps in. This idea of what did I do this weekend and what can I share with you? And by the way, what did I share with the other four people that asked me about that on Monday um, so that my lie or my um, my information is streamlined across and I, you know, you don't catch me in anything is ultimately such a waste of time. That time and energy that I can spend dedicated to a model or a fundraise or whatever the case may be, or a management team. The other piece too is that when folks feel seen, safe, and connected, they are also more engaged and happier in what they do. So just from an individual perspective and a work output, think about how much greater the returns would be if all of our people can feel that and can feel like they can just be themselves and bring to the table what they do best day in and day out. The point about a waste of energy is such a good one. If you're spending even 5% of your mental energy filtering, that's 5% less that you're allocating to, you know, A plus performance to the challenges before you. If, if fear of failure or fear of being misunderstood is creeping in, how much less likely are you to volunteer an idea that might be a bit out of the box? So what good ideas are being kept off the table? Because even if it's not related to that idea, there's something that is making people hold back a little bit and not, as you say, being fully engaged and being fully authentic. The other thing I'd love to chat about is what about our LPs? What do we need to make sure that they are advocating for, right? Because if they advocate loudly, to see LGBTQ plus data and see progress from the GPs, the likelihood is that GPs will begin doing exactly that. What are your thoughts on that? Part, part of it, um, and I've especially observed this over the last several months with the, the diversity in action signatories and thinking about how we revise the template 
that LPs are giving to GPs to capture diversity information within the GPs team and, and also at portfolio companies, part of it has been around just normalizing the ask, normalizing the inclusion of this information and not making it optional. It's there. If you don't have it, fine. If you have it, wonderful. But kind of holding it back as something that would be a nice to have and so it's optional. What we really care about is gender diversity. That's the wrong approach. That's the conclusion that, you know, we came to as Ilba and the same stories came to and certainly our our LPs on the Diversity, Equity, Inclusion Advisory Council at ILPA, let's let's normalize this, even if the data isn't there today. Create the vessel, create the space so that people can actually start to think, well, well how, how could I? I don't know. I actually don't know the answer. How could I alter my processes to start to capture that information if it's there, if my team actually includes folks who identify as part of the community? And, you know, Jenna, I would love to push even a little bit harder on that to say, fine, you might not have it today, but in two, three years, we're going to need you to have it. So make sure that you're moving towards that, right? And make sure that you're having a plan in place because we know we're all on a journey for sure. And through ILPA, I've, I've gotten the absolute pleasure of seeing folks in different journeys and helping each other throughout that. So thank you for creating that um, for us. But also is this concept that we have to acknowledge that journey and that stage, but move it along and create a plan to, to get us all at least to a place where there's a base level understanding across the board. And to pull back for a second, and in how are LPs approaching this today? As I said, I think a lot of LPs started off with questions about gender. They've been expanding that to include questions about race, ethnicity. Some, the minority, I wouldn't say it's the, the vast majority of LPs are starting to say, what about LGBTQ plus? Um, but you know, part of this is expanding the the spectrum of information, more nuanced aspects of diversity that you're asking for. But yeah, LPs absolutely are on a journey. I will tell you, though, that they acknowledge that the numbers across whatever metric you're looking at, the numbers are going to look bad today. We acknowledge that. We own it. Five years from now, if there's been no movement, we're going to have a different conversation. And so today, yeah, the numbers look bad. I don't expect them to look good. Tell me what you're doing. And I'm channeling the voice of the LP here. Tell me what you're doing to make it better. How are your recruiting processes changing? How are you trying to create inclusive culture for the people you have on your team? How are you thinking about growing that next generation of leadership that includes diverse voices and perspectives? Five years from now, and I don't know if it's five, it's kind of an arbitrary horizon, but five years from now, if you have both no movement in the metrics, whatever metrics you're capturing, and nothing has changed as far as how you're approaching it from an organizational development perspective, I think LPs are going to be taking a much harder line because this, this can't be allowed to continue in perpetuity. We all have to improve and we have to be able to make demonstrable progress, even if it's going to take some time for that to show up in our reported numbers. I love that. That's the definition of true, bold leadership. You know, one of the one of the other things that we are 
thinking or not thinking, but rather um, doing is beginning to have conversations with our advisors or suppliers or vendors right, around um, diversity. And lots of what I hear from our peers is, you know, how can we ask an advisor to bolster their IND numbers or their diversity figures if we aren't there yet? And what I often say is, again, this goes back to the community, right? We have to help one another. We have to create that plan of how can we partner um, to move this forward. And LP and the LP and GP relationship is no different. What are your thoughts? Well, I, and going back to the supplier diversity point, yeah, you, you have to be authentic yourself. If you're going to ask the question, how can you hold the mirror up and say, well, we're doing this too. We're, we're asking you the question. We're asking ourselves the question. But then the next place that I go is, are you selecting away from certain suppliers who have neither just like an LP with a GP, right? Who have neither good numbers nor doing doing anything about it. You know, how does that affect your buying decisions? And I think it it comes back to that. Yeah, we want to create the community. We want to we want to acknowledge we're all on the same journey. At what point does accountability factor in? So for how long? Whether it's you know as a GP buyer of supplier services or as an LP investing with a GP. For how long are you willing to accept no progress or mediocrity when it comes specifically to diversity, equity, and inclusion? And how does that shape your buying decisions? And until we have the answer to that, I think we're a little bit in limbo, right? Because we're all trying, we're all making a good faith effort. We're trying to believe the best of our partners. And um, we're, we're not yet saying... Show me your work, maybe on that same level of depth. That that is an open question. You know, where does account? At what point does accountability actually come into the equation in a real way? Totally. And look, I won't pretend to be naive enough to say that our LPs are going to choose to invest in us solely because we are doing better with whatever diversity segment you want to talk about. However, to your earlier point around bold leadership, maybe part of that decision criteria today is 1%, right? But in the future, in three years, is going to be five. In five years, is going to be 10%. And giving us that visibility into how you are going to weigh efforts around inclusion and diversity can really light kind of a flame or a fire under us to really get our acts more together than we are today. Because I think the willingness is there, but an extra push or even a carrot um, goes a long way. I think some LPs are doing a great job of being transparent about where does this factor in? And they acknowledge that right now it's, it's qualitative, again, information gathering, understanding mode, but that these, you know, different conversation at some point in the future. Um, I think another call to action would be for more LPs for whom this is increasingly important, whether purely for business reasons, because you really do believe that you'll get better investment outcomes if you have more diverse perspectives in the room when decisions happen, or, you know, in reaction to pressure from your stakeholders and beneficiaries or some combination of the of the two, 
being more forthright about how it factors in now and in the future, I think will only move the industry forward. So having more of that transparency about the weighting, as you say, is absolutely critical. And Jen, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the fact that the LGBTQ plus community is so different, right? Um, everybody's perspective is going to be not as a function of the community that they identify with, right? But as people, um, we are a collection of, of individuals. We are not a collection of identities. Um, and I, I think the other thing that I struggle with, and I know a lot of people struggle with, is if I, if I am a gay person in a very small organization, it doesn't matter how inclusive the culture is, I may still never want to be out at work. And, and something I think more and more people are beginning to appreciate, it's not my responsibility to be out at work. And I think that makes that, it makes it very difficult. Um, you know, how do we know that we're creating spaces that feel safe, given that the fact that how I want to be at work is still my choice as an individual. I don't have, I don't think there are any easy answers to that um, because it does come down to, you know, how you as an, as an individual choose to be. Um, but I think that's part of it is that so much of identity that is not readily visible is invisible. Um, and that you could say that about persons with disabilities, right? Where you don't know what somebody is carrying on their shoulders at work. You really don't. Um, so I think all we, all we can do for the moment is try to be as open um, as we can be as receptive um, to other people's experiences, you know, really trying to cultivate that trust, trying to cultivate that respect and, you know, make the space for people to be who they want to be in the workplace. Jen, I really have loved this conversation. The truth is you and I, I feel like kindred spirits, especially on this topic. We can talk this for hours. Um, our listeners probably don't have hours uh, to listen to us um, muse and, and really get down and dirty on these topics. But I appreciate you the work OPA is doing and how you're pushing and helping all of us become better, better for our communities and better for the world. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I really loved doing this with you. Of course, as you said, we could talk for hours, but thank you so much for uh, bringing me into the discussion with you today. 